when was the last time you made a significant decision in your life that you regretted later if you were to backtrack your life today to that very same moment you made that decision do you think you would have made a different decision this is the question stanley and i are addressing today looking into how human mind operates on the issue of free will do we really have the freedom we think we have after all you made that decision to eat a fruit for snack and not a cookie out of your free will right well it might be a little bit more complex than that if a person's choice to commit a crime is determined by a certain pattern of neural activity which is also the product of prior causes bad genes a dramatic childhood lost sleep or even cosmic ray bombardment that mutated one of his genes can we really say that his will was free when he committed that crime we understand an average person's basic intuition is wanting to punish criminals or not reward people who make bad choices in their life but before we jump into that conclusion let's listen to this conversation This might completely change your attitude towards people who commit bad acts and make you more compassionate towards people who make bad choices in life. Stanley, welcome back. Thank you, Bino. It's always a pleasure to be back. When we left our conversation about morality last time, we touched upon a new topic called free will that's right you promised that you would come back and talk about it <laughs> yeah i i kind of remember that now so yeah, yeah here i am <laughs> so thank you appreciate it i would admit that this is not an easy topic there are a lot of ways that we can talk about it scientifically philosophically so regardless i feel like this is an important topic because it affects pretty much all parts of our life I think it is important that we define what free will is and sure. why should we even talk about it. Sure. So what is free will? When talking about a human being, we see that each person has an autonomous body capable of making free choices. So that is pretty much what we call free will is. Now, the question is what is the opposite of free will, which typically known as determinism. Determinism says unconscious neural events determine our thoughts and actions and are themselves determined by prior causes of which we are subjectively unaware of. This is a age-old debate between free will and determinism. But regardless of where we stand on free will versus determinism, of course we don't believe that we have unbounded free will. For example, we believe that we can jump, but we cannot jump to the moon so even the people who believe that they have free will all their thoughts and actions are out of their own free will has to agree that they don't have unbounded free will uh, because your free will is free only within the laws of the nature now free will touches nearly everything we care about morality law politics religion public policy intimate relationships feelings of guilt pride of personal accomplishment and the list goes on without free will 
our current justice system and most of our religious beliefs about faith and uh, eternal destiny would appear completely inappropriate because sinners and criminals would be just another human being with a brain that is nothing but a poorly calibrated neural network or poorly mixed chemical composition people love to believe that they have free will because they want to feel they are in charge of their life or at least their ego doesn't like not being in control we also want to believe other people's actions are out of their free will imagine if your wife's decision to marry you wasn't out of her own free will it will completely change the dynamics of how relationships work not just a romantic relationship even friendships so let me start by asking the same question to you stan why should we talk about free will in your opinion and what are some of the implications of where you stand in terms of whether someone has free will or not uh you know i i think you've covered the definition very well so i don't need to be going back to trying to define it i do believe that we have free will that's one of the most obvious things on a day-to-day basis on a, on a moment by moment basis we have to make free choices we have to make choices rather whether they're free or not we will come to that later when i go to a restaurant and a waiter brings a menu to me i'm not going to sit there and say i'm a thoroughgoing determinist let nature come and make that choice for me i would have to make that choice and this is an experience that we have almost every day what do we eat what do we wear where do we go and so on to me um it's as obvious as the fact that a fish in the middle of the pacific ocean is covered with water on all sides so denying free will is like that fish saying that water doesn't exist it doesn't even call for proofs well not only for me as an individual but also for us as a society as civilization as a whole because almost every institution that we can speak of for human beings is built on the foundation of free will whether you take political institutions as you said criminal justice systems economic systems and um and a whole host of other things are built on this foundation of free will if we claim that free will doesn't exist and all of these would have to be demolished and reconstructed then it wouldn't make any sense to say that we need to reconstruct anything because we are not free moral agents to do that so that is where i stand respect to free will in our conversation i'm i'm going to be challenging that position uh, not necessarily that i hold on to a particular position on whether we have free will or not but for the sake of our conversation uh, i think it would be interesting to bring out some aspects of what is the other side saying there are very compelling challenges that people can bring forth against that so that's exactly what i think our conversation is going to be just to start with um, let's take uh, the example of uh, two criminals steven and josh who broke into a couple's home with the intention of robbing them the husband who is a doctor was sleeping on the sofa the steven the first criminal he first hesitated but then he struck him in the head with a baseball bat and killed him then they took the doctor's wife and drove her to the bank to withdraw $15000 and came back to their home and divided the money then they raped their two daughters who were sleeping upstairs and later set the house on fire 
the girls died of smoke inhalation now this is this is a terrible story and by the way this is a true story but i didn't want to get into a lot of details now when you hear this story we all agree that their behavior was sickening any morally sensible person would feel outraged and want the criminals to be punished to the maximum extent allowed by the law now if we are someone who is really close to the doctor's family many of us would feel entirely justified in killing these monsters with our own hands now after the crime happened our immediate emotions are settling in but we are still angry and outraged now later on let's say that we learned some additional information about the criminals does it matter that steven one of the criminals has shown signs of regret and has attempted suicide after the incident does it matter that josh was repeatedly abused as a child he was different quote unquote different from other people psychologically damaged does it matter their original intention was to rob their home not necessarily to murder anyone is our moral intuitions shifting slightly now on a further analysis let's say one of the men had a tumor growing in his brain his neurophysiology was damaged would we begin to look at him in a different light we all know for sure a tumor can cause neurophysiological differences in someone's brain however we are not able to accept childhood trauma neglect etc can cause changes in our neural network why it is a known fact that altering brain chemistry can affect a person's behavior and decision making uh, for example alcohol drugs brain tumor etc so a person who is drunk we all know that would behave differently or a person who is under the influence of some kind of a drug can behave totally differently now let's address the issue of free will here if you were to trade places with one of these men steven or josh atom for atom gene for gene their social development path with your social development path their brain with your brain i'm going to say that you would be him do you agree i don't i don't think i agree because if you allow me i will answer more than that question sure, i yeah, I'll try to address this whole issue that you brought up the issue that you brought up is what we've under- understood millennia ago that there are some people within our, our human race that have pathological brain conditions that uh, that in some circumstances cause them to behave as if they don't have free will one of the first known criminal justice codes was the code of hammurabi i think it was in 814 i'm sorry bc 1400 or so it had a provision for the what we call today i don't know if it's called something else but we commonly refer to it as the insanity defense millennia ago we realized that some people have pathological brain conditions that can cause them to behave as if free will doesn't exist fundamentally our understanding has not changed but it may have changed in degrees we may have recognized that there are certain conditions of our brains that further reduce the bandwidth within which our free will operates as you correctly pointed out we don't have an unlimited free will our free wills are limited to that bandwidth and maybe we now realize that what we thought was the bandwidth isn't actually the bandwidth it's a lot smaller 
For example, we know that there is a correlation between suicides and serotonin levels. Our understanding of hormones and brain tumors, as you pointed out, we know that there may be limitations. But it is a logical fallacy of hasty generalizations to, to say that because there may be some people within us with pathological brain conditions, or as you pointed out, maybe we'll find out later that childhood abuse takes away that free will, whatever, right? We, I don't think we, we have that conclusion yet today. Uh, I don't think we ever will. I don't know, maybe not. But if we recognize those as problems, we can't generalize it to all people at all times having no free will. Sam Harris, he wrote a book called Free Will, where he thinks free will doesn't exist, right? And I think he brings out examples like these, where he talks about people engaging in criminal acts and then asks the question, what if they were pathologically conditioned? Would that affect how we view them, right? His entire book consists of making these hasty generalizations. In fact, John Horgan, one of the writers of Scientific America, he reviewed Harris's book after he wrote that. And uh, I'll read out exactly the words that he said. So here's what Horgan says. Harris seems to be advancing a reductio ad absurdum, except that he wants us to accept the absurdum that there is no fundamental difference between me and a man compelled to kill by a brain tumor, or between me and someone who can't help washing his hands every 20 minutes, or someone who's a schizophrenic, or a babbling baby, or a newt, or a worm. I mean, if I'm not different from a guy who kills because a brain tumor provokes him into murderous rages, how am I different from anyone or anything with a brain, no matter how damaged or tiny? Here's the difference. The man with a tumor has no choice but to do what he does. I do have choices which I make all the time. Yes, my choices are constrained by the laws of physics. My genetic inheritance, upbringing, and education. The social, cultural, political, and intellectual context of my existence. And as Harris keeps pointing out, I didn't choose to be born into this universe, to my parents, in this nation, at this time. I don't choose to grow old and die. But just because my choices are limited doesn't mean they don't exist. Just because I don't have absolute freedom doesn't mean I have no freedom at all. Saying that free will doesn't exist because it isn't absolutely free is like saying truth doesn't exist because we can't achieve absolute perfect knowledge. So I think it's pretty clear that almost everything that Harris is trying to accomplish in his book is to generalize the fact that there may be some people among us with conditions that may limit their free will or do away with their free will to say that no human being at any time has free will. And I think that's a, a false conclusion and, and a logical fallacy. So by the way, the incident that uh, I pointed out, you know, even though a tumor growing in your brain can cause neurophysiological difference in a person's brain and eventually in his behavior and actions, that is not entirely limited to uh, a disease condition. Like I pointed out, there are a lot of other factors which can cause the same kind of impact. Hormone on some, levels. Yeah, some, hormone yeah, levels, yeah, some kind of a trauma, whether it is psychological or physical. But let's dig a little bit more deeper into that. The, the fact that we are conscious of only a tiny fraction of the information that our brains process in each moment. For example, can we predict what our next thought is? Not really. Try to predict the next thought you are going to think. An average person has 6200 thoughts per day. How many of them are in his or her control? Can you stop your thoughts? So as an experiment, I, I have heard many people using this. Like if you are sitting in a very quiet room 
And if I ask you to think about a white elephant, immediately an image comes to your brain and then the elephant just appears in your brain, even though there is no such thing called a white elephant in reality. And now after a while, if I ask you to stop thinking about the white elephant, you cannot help but the image is still there in your brain. Another example would be, I usually start my day by drinking tea and later eating a fruit, a banana or apple. This morning, it was an apple. Why not banana? Did I consciously choose apple over banana? No. If I were to backtrack my life all the way to my origin, I wouldn't have chosen banana this morning. The intention to do one thing and not the other does not originate in our consciousness. Rather, it appears in our consciousness. I, I, I beg to differ, disagree with that. Yes, there are moments where thoughts just came, seem to be streaming into our minds and we it appears to us we have no control over them. And that may be true, right? When I'm sitting out on my deck and daydreaming, um, sure, a bunch of thoughts keep streaming into my mind. But does this mean that I'm incapable of deliberately setting aside time to think about something? So if I'm going to plan today about my vacation next year at three between 3 and 4 p.m., I, as a free agent, can decide what I'm going to be thinking about rather than simply having those thoughts stream into my mind. This is another example, I think, of the of hasty generalizations, which says just because sometimes thoughts seem to pop into my mind, that that's all there ever is. One of the aspects of, well, I didn't define free will, but I think there's one more piece to the definition of free will, and that has to do with the fact that we're free agents. We're free rational agents, and we're free moral agents. So what does it mean to say we're free rational agents? It means that we go out into the world, and we deliberately test facts and data and come to conclusions based on the logical arguments that uh, we make based on that data, and then we act upon that those conclusions. This is the sign of a free rational agent. You know, those thoughts merely didn't pop into my hand. I went deliberately out into the world, I tested the world, and then I came to that conclusion. That is very different from saying that, you know, I decided to have an apple or a banana, or I decided to do the opposite tomorrow, and I can't really tell where that thought came from. There are many things in my life I can tell you exactly where they came from, and that had to do with my rational agency of going and testing things and, and deciding how I was going to act. There was a physiologist called Benjamin Liebert used EEG to show that activity in the brain's motor cortex can be detected about 300 milliseconds before a person feels that he has decided to move. More recently, direct recordings from the cortex showed that the activity of merely 256 neurons were sufficient to predict with 80% accuracy a person's decision to move 700 milliseconds before he became consciously aware of it. So it appears some moments before you are aware of what you will do next, your brain has already determined what you will do. We do not know what we intend to do until the intention itself arises. Where is free will in that? I, I think I'm going to elaborate a little bit on the Libet experiment because that is held up as the gold standard of debunking free will. Right? In the 60s, two German scientists, uh, Kornhuber and Dick 
they discovered something very important about human beings. They had EEGs connected to the scalp and they detected an electrical spike a few moments before motor acts were initiated, right? Or actually, a few moments before the motor act itself. They called it a very long German name. I'm probably going to butcher it. It's called the Breitschaft's Potential. That was a significant find, but it said nothing about free will. But in the late 80s, Benjamin Libet took that experiment experiment and made a uh, an important change to it and that was the experiment that we will be discussing here so here's what libet did he had a bunch of test subjects in a room and they were told to raise uh, their hand or their wrist a simple motor act and, and then they were asked to look at a fast moving clock a clock that was also very accurate it measured time in milliseconds there were three pieces of data that came from this experiment first was the time of the actual motor act. Let's call that time zero, T zero. There was uh, the conscious decision of the test subjects to make that motor act. And uh, the test subjects were, were told to look at that fast moving clock and, and look at the exact time in which they made that decision to raise their hand. Well, obviously your decision comes before the motor act. So that was at time negative 150 milliseconds. Now, what was really astounding was the fact that this breathe shaft potential, which translated into English as readiness potential, occurred at T negative 500 milliseconds. So that's the 350 millisecond difference we're talking about, right? If, if your brain shows activity that happened 350 milliseconds before you even deciding, then maybe your brain has already made that decision for you. Except that this is one of the most flawed experiments, not because the experiment itself was flawed, but the way it was interpreted, the, the, the results of this experiment were interpreted to show that free will doesn't exist. So what are the flaws? There's three main flaws of the experiment. The first one, not as serious, but the second and third are quite serious. The first flaw, it has to do with what exactly was being measured. Now, when we're talking about milliseconds, right, and you're relying on the test subjects to tell you the exact time in which they felt the urge to lift their hands based on how they read the clock. What if there was some discrepancy in their noticing of the time and their decision and their reporting of that fact? But as I said, that may not be such a serious flaw. Maybe you can correct for that. But the other two have to do with what exactly was being measured. The other two really had to do with the interpretation. First one was, what exactly are you measuring? So what is being measured is a the a motor act, which falls in under the classes of acts called a proximal action. What's a proximal action? Anything that's a simple motor act, like raising your hand or wrist, or let's say when you drive your act of hitting the brakes, when somebody cuts in front of you, those are all proximal actions. This experiment was measuring proximal actions, right? Simple lifting of the hand or wrist. Now, if you conclude from this experiment that free will doesn't exist, let's say that your proximal act was in fact caused by a brain. We don't know any such thing from this experiment. This is only a speculation that the brain spike caused the conscious decision or the, or the motor act itself. But even if that is true, it is only showing that a proximal action may have been caused by the brain itself. Because the other class of actions called distal actions, right, the complex actions that we make that involve 
a lot of decision making, such as which college you're going to, who you're going to marry and so on. They are a different class of decisions. They are fundamentally different from a proximal decision. You can't take the result of a proximal action and then generalize it to all actions, including distal actions. Because let's think about this. As I said, one of the examples of proximal actions are your driving, right? The, the hundreds of things you do every mile you drive. Do you think you are conscious every time you do it? Isn't that what people call muscle memory? Muscle memory, exactly. Yeah. There's a reason why the brain does that. Because it's an energy-saving method. Because the human brain, as we know, consumes a lot of energy. And if we had to be conscious about every proximal action we make, we die a lot sooner because the other functions of the body won't have energy left over. So once it gets on the muscle memory, these are learned behaviors. They're not innate behaviors. Once it gets in the memory, you can do it without conscious thinking. And uh, could the lifting of the hand be uh, one such thing? It's so simple that your conscious brain does not have to be involved in it. And it relegates it to the brain process or the muscle memory. At least for the test subject who are undergoing this experiment would have any muscle memory in that particular case there. Well, right. the raising of your hand itself is such a simple act. I mean, you've done this for all sorts of things before, right? And you're asked to do this several times. Maybe the first or second may be conscious, but then eventually it can so happen that, that you, you just let your brain do it. Now, this is also assuming that the brain activity is causing this action. We don't know that yet. In fact, all of the stuff that I've been talking about, the flaws of the experiment, were discovered by Peter Tsai and his team. Uh, they're neuroscientists at Dartmouth. And uh, they are convinced that you can't take a proximal action like that and then generalize it to ex complex distal actions, such as which college to go to or who to marry. Right? They belong to different classes of actions, and you cannot generalize them. The third flaw of this experiment has to do with how you interpret it, right? There are, as I said, there are three data points. The time of the action, the time of the conscious awareness of the action, and the time of the brain spike measured by EEG. We know there is a temporal relationship between the spike and the motor act, a relationship of time. But in order to prove a causal relationship between the two, there has to be a lot more factors involved. Let me give you an example. A uh, rooster crows before the sun rises. There is a temporal relationship between a rooster crowing and the sun rise, rising. But it doesn't mean that the rooster crowing caused the sun to rise. This is what I meant to say that just because there's a temporal relationship between two, that, that doesn't mean that there is a causal relationship between the two things. And this is one of the biggest questions of science. Well, how do you prove causality? Causality, proving causality is actually one of, it's, it's harder than most people think it is, right? In the 1800s, early 1800s, John Stuart Mills had identified certain conditions to say, okay, here's how you can prove causality. And I'm not going to all those conditions, but one of them is what we call concomitant variance or concomitant variation. What he said is, it, it's a big name, but it's a simple concept. He said, if you want to prove A caused B, one way to find out is increase A by a certain amount and see if B increases proportionally. So if my, the speed of my car is caused by my pressing on the gas pedal, the more I press it, the faster it'll go, right? So that's one way to prove causality. Peter Tsa and his team have not discovered concomitant variance between the spike and the motor act. And so his conclusions are this has no causal relationship. There's only a temporal relationship. Libet in 2004 wrote a book, okay? The, the title of the book was mind time. And here's what he says. Given the issue is so fundamentally important to our view of who we are, claim that our free will is illusory should be based on fairly direct evidence, meaning to say that 
we don't have such direct evidence to to generalize what is true for a proximal action to all distal actions. So this is one of the flawed experiments. And, uh, and, and, and when we're making such a big claim, such as free will doesn't exist, right? As I said, we know this innately. We make this on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. We know this to be true from a civilization standpoint. Every one of our institutions are based on the foundation of free will. When you're making an extraordinary claim that such as free will doesn't exist, you need extraordinary evidence. And a flawed experiment like this won't cut, cut it, I think. Let me approach the, the same issue from another angle. We often accuse people saying that you are responsible for your life. You had a free will to choose a better life, but you did not. Let's say your life has gone off track. You used to be uh, a very motivated, inspired and physically fit person. Now you are lazy, easily discouraged and overweight. You might be able to explain it by telling a story about how your life unraveled, but you cannot truly account for why you let it happen. But now you want to change through an act of will. You have started reading self-help books, changed your diet plan, and joined the gym. You decided to go back to school on top of all that. But after six months, you are not closer to living the life you wanted. The book failed to make an impact on you. Your diet and fitness plan has failed and you got bored with school. You tried to change your habits, but your habits appear to be stronger than you are. But then... You woke up this morning. Before stepping out of the bed, you had a brilliant idea. You share the idea with several smart people and they think it is guaranteed to make you rich. At the same time, one of your friends suggested a famous lifestyle coach and fitness guru to you and you found his sessions are extremely helpful and motivating. In the next four months, you worked hard in the gym and you swap 20 pounds of fat for 20 pounds of muscle. You feel entirely different about your life. And the role that discipline, choice and effort have played in your resurrection cannot be denied. But how can you be credited for your ability to make these efforts today and not a year ago? Where did this great idea come from? It just appeared in your mind. Did you as a conscious agent feel yourself to be the creator of it? If so, why not just create the next idea right now? Yes, you can decide to go on a diet. And we know a lot about the variables that will enable you to stick to it. But you cannot know why you were finally be able to stick to this discipline when all your previous attempts failed. You might have a story to tell about why things were different this time around. But it would be nothing more than a detailed description of events that you did not control. You wanted to lose weight for years, then you really wanted to. What is the difference? Whatever it is, it's not a difference that you brought into being. And uh, the same can be talked about a lot of other things like people going through de-addiction process, like quitting smoking, for example, right? People try to quit smoking all the time, but they fail. But at some point, they succeed. How do you address that issue? That if you have all the will and if you have all the resources available today, but you are not able to make a change in your life, but later down the road, after a year ago, you had, you are the same person, you have the same brain, you have the same amount of resources available, but you are able to make a decision or you are able to make a difference in your lifestyle. How do you address that issue? 
I think I'm going to address that a couple of ways and um, really not going to be saying much different from what we've been talking so far. One of the things is the fact that we have limited free wills. We talked about this. A lot of things influence how we're able to think and act in the world, even if we have the free will, right? So it's not just the fact that we, when we say limited free will, we can will whatever we want, but whether we can bring that to fruition in behavior is what is governed by the limitations. So you you gave the example of somebody who wanted to start a program a year ago, but failed, but then succeeded this time around. Could it be because they had access to better resources this time than they did the last time? It sure sounded like that, right? Uh, they, they had, for example, a fitness guru or someone like that that they didn't have access to back then. So absolutely, depending on the resources we have, that can affect the outcome of our behaviors, right? So with little effort or a pathway in which there is milestones where I can feel motivated can keep me going versus one in which I don't see any difference and I stop doing it is suggests a difference of resources, right? But it also comes down, I think, to the fact that we are free moral agents. And, and again, it comes back to the fact that morality is objective. There are objective moral principles. If I act on objective moral principles of, say, uh, hard work and perseverance and courage, my behaviors will be very different from the times where I didn't act in those moral ways where I gave up. I didn't persevere or I didn't have the courage to do a certain thing because I was afraid of all the consequences of it and so on. So it comes down to these two things. We have limitations and that can affect our outcomes. And sometimes we don't act as free moral agents even when we can. So just the fact that I decided to act morally today versus yesterday doesn't prove that I don't have free will. You ask, why didn't I act yesterday? Uh, Well, that doesn't prove that I don't have the free will, that that my action today was just caused by prior physical causes versus yesterday. Does it it prove that there is some subjective parameters there? It proves that there are lots of influences that may have been different from the first versus the second one, right? I didn't have access to that self-help guru last time. And I had it today. He has a way, for example, of motivating me the way the self-help book didn't motivate me. That is a different resource. And that can influence me. Again, I'm not saying that it is completely caused by this new resource. It is influenced by it. That would just be merely an explanation of your story, right? But it still doesn't prove that you are in full control of your own will. Because if you are in full control of your own will, you would have done the same thing a year ago. Again, it comes back to many of the things we talked about, right? I think like uh, Sam Harris would say we don't have free will because if you start from the metaphysical position of causal determinism, then you can't have free will. Determinism is a mutually exclusive proposition from free will. If the world is deterministic, we cannot have free will. And so everything you see around you, if you start out with this metaphysical position, is that there is no such thing as a free will. Now, this, of course, defies the day-to-day experience and the moment-by-moment experience we have. And all of what civilization has done for all these, these millennia, it defies that. And it's an extraordinary claim to say that free will doesn't exist. You can say, well, it's merely your brain playing tricks on you or you're just telling a story or whatever. That's not how all of civilization has seen it. 
And uh, if he's making a claim like that, then he has to support it with extraordinary evidence. I don't, yeah. I don't see that. Anymore. I completely agree that it is a very outrageous claim mm-hmm. because it, it changes everything. Yeah. Uh, like we talked about the entire legal system mm-hmm. is built upon the, uh, with the premise that we have free will. Actually, it's not just the legal system. Let's think about the other institutions. Economic systems, right? Regardless of where on the spectrum you fall, you could be a, a Marxist socialist on one end or a libertarian on the other, wherever you fall on it. The essential idea is that of a free rational agent which says, if only the world implements my system, the world will be a better place. And then you go out and implement that, right? Or, or you take uh, the economic systems, whether you fall on uh, capitalism on one hand or socialism on the other, right? All you're saying is implement this system and it will be a better place. This is built into the very nature of how we think about the world. I completely agree right. with that. Yeah. But that that is not to say that you cannot make an outrageous claim if there are adequate evidence. Absolutely right. For example, Absolutely for right. thousands of years, people did not believe that evolution, evolution was a fact, mm-hmm. right? A revolutionary idea when it was brought forth. Yes. Right? So this could be a revolutionary idea that free will does not exist as we thought that it exists. Or maybe it is a mere illusion. Yeah. So there is no doubt about it. It is very radical. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at science, right? Almost every new paradigm that replaces an old paradigm, it was once an outrageous claim that demolished the old paradigm. But the reason those paradigms stick is because of two things. One is they, well, one or the other of two things. One is they have empirical evidence, solid empirical evidence to show that they are true. Number two, they have great explanatory power. And and then you, you look at this paradigm, you say, yes, this whole thing makes sense. Free will has uh, only the quality of being outrageous and nothing else to it. So every outrageous claim is not a true claim. So let's... Um Look at a little bit more uh, differently now. Okay. okay. So as children, for example, adults helped us to develop imagery and emotional attachments by pointing and labeling things to us, such as car, plane, the color blue. As soon as you hear these words, there are images created in your brain. And there are words uh, which has emotions attached to it. For example, deadline, boss, project. How much can you control the emotions you feel when you hear these words? When I hear the sound of some construction outside uh, my window, it merely imposes an image upon my consciousness. I haven't brought it into being and I cannot stop it at will. The other aspect is people can get attached to their point of views so strongly. Strong political views held by some people is a good example. Implicit bias is an automatic neurological uh, response that is measurable by MRI. So how do you explain this that when you when you are implicitly biased for example and you hear about something it just creates the image in your brain for you not at your will it just happens in autopilot that's a good point the question is are these images purely based on nothing or are they based in reality Right. And we'd agree that some of the images that were created for us by our parents are based in reality. When they say car, there is such a thing as car. Well, I could have got that idea from my parents or I could have got it from a book or I could have got it from my own empirical research. And then I get the picture. But the, all of these things are based in reality, right? So just because we have an image in our head, this is how rational minds operate. We understand things sort of in images, 
And this only means that we're free rational agents, that we actually create these images in our head, wherever we got it from, parents or well, whoever. The, the distinction is, are you creating the image or does the image appear in your brain? That's, that's the distinction that I want to make. So as soon as I say the word deadline, there's something that you can, some, some emotions are attached to it. Are you in control of that emotion? Well, I, I think, and I was going to make a second point there, are we influenced by certain things? So when you say deadline, it does that produce, does that cause a certain hormone to increase in my body, thereby producing an emotion within me? That may be absolutely true. I didn't, you know, nobody has ever denied the fact that these things are, are have a certain influence that causes us to behave in certain ways. Just because the image appears in my mind versus I don't know what the alternative would be that I would create an image, what would that look like? Uh, or, I guess I'm not understanding that distinction. Well, how much are you in control of what happens in your own brain when you hear these words. I, I think I'm getting to where you're going. So if, you, if you're my boss, right, you say, here's a deadline. On the 24th of this month, I need this project in. That creates a, a picture in my head, uh, which I had no control of. That uh, would create a certain hormone level in my mind, which uh, then would increase my heart rate, maybe. And I would then start getting on that project right now and I would complete it by the 24th except not everybody completes their projects within mm -hmm. the deadline which is what free will really means they do influence you to act in certain ways but given those very same certain circumstances you may choose to act differently that's what free will means well is is that also an evidence that free will does not exist because not everybody completes it because if it is at your will, and if you know what that means, what deadline means, that you would want to finish the project by the deadline, right? But not everybody does it. Not everybody does it. Isn't exactly. that We're example of? Beings. Isn't that the example of not everybody is in control of their own will? I think this can be read both ways, right? The same thing can be read both ways, right? This, uh, so. Here's the thing. Essentially, if we're creating an experimental condition, right, controlled experimental condition, what we have to show from that experiment is that you set all the parameters in a certain way and that human beings will produce that same decision. That's not at all what we see. You can set parameters and the same human being in those very same parameters will act differently, right? So it doesn't, you can't set, you can't create an experimental condition that proves scientifically that human beings don't have free will because unless they absolutely do it, maybe 95% of the time, but you don't, we don't have evidence of any such experimental condition because that's quite easy. Well, I shouldn't say it's quite easy to construct, but it can be done. And we do act differently in those circumstances. Yeah, so it's it's hard to scientifically prove it. I yeah, completely yeah. agree with that. But experientially, I think that's where that's where I was trying to go to. The, the other aspect I want to bring uh, into the discussion is how how our body functions. There are about 37 trillion cells in our body, and our body replaces ab about 330 billion cells per day. At that rate, your body is making over 3.8 million new cells every second. You are completely unaware of this process. Many of your body functions are in autopilot. Breathing, beating of your heart, digestion, your immune system, hormone production. You have no input there. You are only experiencing the output. How much input do you have into the neural activity of your brain? 
here is uh, an example to elaborate that a little bit during pregnancy uh, a woman's body will produce different hormones which influences their actions and thoughts uh, can we really blame them for that or can we tell them that it's all in your head so with the strength of your will you can feel differently postpartum depression is a clinically proven disorder literally thousands of people experience all around the world there is clearly a correlation between a lot of functions that is happening in your body that you are completely unaware of and your thoughts and your actions so if you put that same thing into the neural activity of your brain again i don't want to go into the whole discussion of reductionism that how you go to the neuron level mm-hmm. you know this this is wired to fire in certain way that's not exactly what i'm saying but we can clearly see that there is an influence of hormones there are there is an influence of some of your bodily functions on your mind do you agree absolutely right so this is something we learned in third grade right uh, that we have two sets of actions voluntary and involuntary yeah. actions we've known this i mean um, we've always known this and yet that hasn't led to the belief that free will doesn't exist you're absolutely right uh, how does my body regulate my metabolism i have no control it does it and we've always understood that there are the small subset of brain activities what we call voluntary actions and that's where consciousness comes into play and where that's where free will operates so just because that that the brain has two sets of activities doesn't disprove free will and again i think we're coming back to this question of does do hormone levels and certain neural wiring influence our behavior and affect our behavior absolutely right we have recognized uh, i think more and more in recent times that hammurabi recognized millennia ago that the bandwidth w- within which uh, our free will operates is maybe very limited but this is not the same thing as saying that no human being at any point in time has no free will see if we're proving that free will doesn't exist that is the radical claim that we're making no human being at no point ever has free will we we know for example that the hormone levels of uh, there is a correlation between serotonin levels and suicide does it mean that everybody with low serotonin levels will commit suicide no that that it doesn't follow from that we know that there's high testosterone levels in male prisoners does it mean that everyone above a certain threshold of testosterone must be put in prison because they will definitely act as a criminal no we can't follow from that right so this is the hasty generalization that uh, sam harris and people like that make to go from the fact that we have a limited bandwidth within which to operate our free will to the radical conclusion that no human at no point has free will one thing i want to do i want to distinguish determinism and fatalism because when we are talking about determinism we are not really talking about fatalism so we don't really have to fall into the idea of fatalism rather we can make sense of determinism actions are predetermined by existing causes so there was a well known german philosopher who once said a man can do as he wills but he cannot determine what he wills so you can do what you decide to do but you cannot decide what you will decide to do your brain does calculations before making a decision and while doing the calculations you don't know what the outcome will be if you did you didn't have to do the calculations the other aspect is for billions of years there was no free will our entire biological evolution was led by this process of natural selection it was not at our will now as we became a conscious being all of a sudden 
how can we claim that oh now we have free will right so that is another argument against free will how do you how do you address that you know i think I, we need to talk a little bit about determinism we haven't really uh, touched on that subject much but that is such a critical issue because if we live in a deterministic world then free will cannot exist if everything is predetermined then we cannot have a free will so what exactly is causal determinism this is the idea that all reality is down to the physical or the material Determinism is rests on the foundation of materialism or pure physicalism. It says that every phenomenon is physical. If that is true, then every physical phenomenon has been caused by prior physical causes or must have been caused by prior physical causes. Therefore, there is this really long causal chain, which is the universe, and everything is nothing but a link on that chain. And so human consciousness, which is a reality of nature, is another link in the chain, right? My contention is that we don't have to start with the metaphysical position of determinism i think determinism is a false position or causal determinism is it's no more technically i have two reasons for that and i can share why i think determinism is false first of all if i can show one or two things that lie outside this system mind you it's a closed causal system right if determinism is true it has to be a closed causal system there can't be anything outside the causes and effects if i can show a couple of things that lie outside of it then it would blow it open wide open right one of them is free will itself when we act as free agents if free will does exist then we're claiming that we initiate that action that no prior physical causes have caused us to act in a certain way but since we're talking about the issue of free will i don't want to use that as mm-hmm. evidence because it would be like me saying free will is the proof of free will and that would amount to saying nothing but there is another thing called necessary truths which are such a thing they do exist they're non-physical non-material and non-temporal they're not bound by space time and matter but they do have causal powers in the world how do we know that to be true well what what exactly are necessary truths let me lay that out it helps first to distinguish necessary truths from the other kinds of truths namely contingent truths there are a certain uh, class of truths called contingent truths those are true only because our universe has certain properties an example would be grass is green grass is green because of a whole bunch of properties of the universe come together to make it true for example uh, we live in a universe with light light has a property of being reflected from surfaces light comes in wavelengths grass has certain properties it has chlorophyll which reflects light in of uh, 550 nanometers that then comes into our eye through our pupil and our retina which gets converted to electrical signals go into our brains and finally the brain has to have the ability to give you a qualitative sensation of green it has no relationship with a 550 nanometer wavelength of light they're two different things one is a sensation and the other is wavelength of light all of these have to come together for grass to be green but there exists a certain class of truths that lie outside of this called necessary truths what do what do we mean by that essentially they would be true regardless of the properties they would be true as philosophers would say in all possible worlds even if our world was fundamentally different they would be true what are some examples some examples include uh, the foundational laws of logic like the law of non-contradiction which aristotle pointed out millennia ago which is still true the foundational truths of mathematics right and the early in the last century two guys one of them you recognize a very famous naturalist the book was print Principia Mathematica by Alfred North Whitehead and Bertrand Russell essentially brought down mathematics to essential logical principles that book was actually 
responsible for the computing revolution that we have today, right? It brings down to the fact that we can create whole algorithms on certain foundational logic, like the NAND gate, for example, right? So there are these truths that are not contingent on the properties of the world. Those would be true regardless of how the world was. Therefore, they're not limited by space, time, and matter. But they do cause things in the world. They cause comprehension. They cause us to create computers. They cause us to do science and all of those things. That is the biggest thorn in the flesh for causal determinism. There exists these realities which are not material, but they have causal powers within the material and the physical. Right? So that's the first reason I think determinism is false. The second one is a scientific reason. One of the first people to have defined causal determinism is Pierre Laplace. Uh, the, he was a mathematician and a polymath. Here's how he defines causal determinism. He defined this in French, so this is a, an English translation. He says, We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect which at any given moment, so this is an intellect, you can replace that with computer, an intellect which at any given moment knew all of the forces that animate nature and the mutual positions of the beings that compose it. If this intellect were vast enough to submit the data to analysis, could condense into a single formula the movement of the great bodies of the universe and that of the lightest atom for for such an intellect nothing could be uncertain in the future just like the past would be present before its eyes essentially what he's saying is this if we had the infinite knowledge of the position of all particles in the universe starting from the atom to the biggest heavenly bodies and we knew all the laws of nature well we can simply use mathematics like differential equations right to which calculates change and we can predict the future as far as we want to because it all functions like this big algorithm right it flows and could you blame him for believing that? Because in 1814, that period of time is very significant. It lies between two very important paradigms of physics, classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. He's making this statement post-classical mechanics and pre-quantum mechanics. About a hundred years, or a little over a hundred years after he makes this statement, comes this brand new paradigm in physics which demolishes the old paradigm called quantum mechanics. And at the heart of quantum mechanics is indeterminacy, right? Heisenberg's uh, uncertainty principle essentially states that all of reality is both wave and particle at the same time. And that is fundamentally indeterminate. It's not just the subatomic particles we're talking about. This is all of matter, you and me included. And out of this flows, you know, the all sorts of interpretations from this, like the Schrodinger's cat experiment, which says that uh, if there's a cat in a box, essentially you don't know if it's dead or alive. It could, and not that it goes between states of dead and alive. It states that the cat can be both dead and alive at the same time. And you only find out when you open the box or do the measurement. That's where the wave function collapses and you can know the position of the particle, dead or alive, right? That's fundamentally indeterminate. You can't blame a Laplace for thinking determinism is true. Newton was a determinist, Einstein was a determinist because that's how the scientific paradigm was. But both philosophically and scientifically, there is no reason to hold on to determinism. I think it's false and outdated and needs, you know, we need to get get rid of it. So the uh, on the quantum level, things are not deterministic. That's At least that's right. the classical the, interpretation of quantum yeah, mechanics. But yes. if you observe the emerging properties of a collection of quantum particles, mm -hmm. you can pretty much 
see that there is there is a clear definition right mm -hmm. because for example natural selection our biological evolution right it's not really like you know totally random right i wouldn't i wouldn't think that you know we grew two hands two ears and two eyes out of totally a random process you know you can at least observe the fact that there is an emerging property from a totally chaotic quantum world but still meaningful and useful and functional absolutely yeah at the macro level things do appear to be determined right and that's true that's how the rest of science functions by looking at the macro functioning of this but my point was simply this you know holding on rigidly to the idea of determinism you can't have free will because determinism is true you know that that thing is starting to really weaken at the foundations we don't have to be married to that view i mean the so and then this is of course a scientific reason even if the world abandons the scientific paradigm for something new which say we determine that it's well, well actually it turns out to be deterministic after all my first argument i think is a much more powerful argument that of the existence of non-material realities having causal powers on the material world is is the biggest weak link in the chain of causal determinism. So you, you mentioned the word scientific materialism earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to kind of clear my thought on that. Actually, I'm, I don't really consider myself as a scientifically materialistic person. Okay. I don't want to interpret everything from the point of view of pure physicalism. That, you know, that's, that's not where I am today, but I don't know where I will be after like five years. But uh, the way I want to think about my life as a story that is unfolding, and I want to be curious about how it is going to unfold. Uh, also understanding free will, while it could be an illusion, I think I should still encourage myself or encourage others to feed our thinking apparatus good data so that good outcomes unfold. I think both of us agree that based on the data that you have collected over the years has an influence on your thoughts mm -hmm. and actions. Sure. You know, there is no doubt about it, right? Absolutely. So whether you stand on the deterministic side of the view or the free will side of the view, it is important that we don't fall into this trap of fatalism, thinking that, oh, everything is predetermined. I just want to sit in my sofa and do nothing and things will happen anyways because everything is predetermined. That's not how I want people to take this message. Regardless of where you stand on this issue, that it is important that we see our life as an unfolding story. And as much as possible, you have a phenomenal apparatus inside your skull that feed that thing with good data, good information, and surround yourself with good people. And that will definitely have an impact uh, yeah. on our life. Except that, uh, you know, I guess I'm a different person from you, the way we were wired and the way we think. If I'm absolutely convinced of something to be true, I cannot then convince myself that it's not true. This is one of the biggest challenges with not believing in free will, right? If I am convinced today by scientific evidence or philosophical, logical reasoning that there is absolutely no free will, I'm that person that's going to just lay on my couch and do nothing at all. I don't see how I can bring myself <laughs> doing anything that when I know this completely defies reality, right? So that's the problem. And I think I'm sure of this, that I'm not the only one in the world like that. Okay, so here is a, a middle ground. I, I heard this from a few people, okay? And I want to lay this out there. I want to know what you think about it. And this, this to me, would at least help people not to fall into a totally deterministic position and be a couch potato. 
this is the way I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this, okay? So could it be that our brains were evolved to function in a certain way, but we can exercise our free will by using our cognitive faculties in a social environment? Uh, I think it would be better to explain this with a, a metaphor. For example, take a car. A car is designed to have a set of predetermined capabilities. But in traffic, it is up to the driver how it should behave. So for example, a car has a steering wheel. If you turn to the right, the car will go to the right side. If you turn left, car will go to the left side. If you apply the brake pedal, the car will stop. So there are things that are built into the car, but it is up to the driver how the driver wants to drive the car mm -hmm. in a traffic situation. Sure. Now, why don't we think our cognitive faculty the same way? So your brain is designed in a certain way to, to respond to certain stimulation. For example, if you see a little baby smiling, you feel happy that is built into you, okay? But it is up to you how you want to respond to that baby. Do you want to go and smile at the baby? Do you want to go and, you know, take the baby and hold, do something? It is up to you. So why don't we develop a position like that, that there are certain things built into your brain which are designed to work in a certain way, but you as a conscious agent can, who is carrying that brain inside your skull, can exercise certain level of autonomy using that brain in a social environment. I uh, absolutely agree with you on that. How I understand the statement you're making is that we ought not to think of ourselves as pure material and physical. Because if that was the case, and just using your analogy, then all there is is the car, right? One thing we've always known is, yes, there is that car, there is that physical brain, and all of the problems that come with it. Problems of childhood, bad memories, and uh, the, uh, the difficult socioeconomic environments that we are in. But I, whatever I means, right, it's distinct from that car. And that I is the one that carries this car along the world, the brain along the world, and makes decisions that defy what the car would normally tend to do under the flow or the weight of the laws of nature and the, the environment. That's exactly what I believe we're not just down to that material car. There is something more than that. There is, that's what makes us human. And if you and I agree that that's what makes us human, then absolutely that's how we ought to live our lives. Taking the car example a little little further. So if the car is damaged, if, if a car, car has some kind of a malfunction, you as a driver still is limited, right? Yes. If the car's turn signal does not work, in a traffic situation, you can get into trouble, yep. right? Whether you turn your turn signal or not, it doesn't yep. matter, right? Yep. So that that is that is the variables that I want to make sure that we understand. Yeah. Yes, and and I think that's one thing that a lot of people need to understand, right? Because if you think that regardless of how, how damaged your brain is or your hormone levels and this thing, this and that, well, it's totally up to you as an individual to do everything, and that we don't have to level the playing field or or, or lend a helping hand to help you in that circumstances, which a lot of people are, you know, I, I think that's a problem. I think we do need to recognize that we're limited. All of us are. It's not just the people we think are limited. Every one of us have limitations in this or that area. And this is what we have to do for each other to help us drive that damaged car through this complicated world. And I completely am on board with you. And more and more, uh, the, the science is discovering these limitations. I think more we should have more and more of an appreciation for them. I don't know if you noticed 
in our conversation a few times a word came up consciousness so that is something that i want to explore a little bit more and i would be very happy if you would join me in a future session to talk about what exactly is human consciousness the hard problem of consciousness yes. I, i'm i'm not saying that we want to solve it but no. at least a have a very it. meaningful discussion about it right yeah, absolutely so, you know i think if i go back and look at the trajectory that we have gone in our discussion so far i think we are making progress as we talked about morality then we came to free will and this is where it all leads to consciousness what yeah. exactly is that thing right what is that thing called i <laughs> <laughs> yeah right and i think that would be a great topic an extremely complex topic it is it's more complex than quantum mechanics or anything else and well neuroscience i think is the most complex science that exists okay. so yeah we'll do our best yeah. <laughs> i think we are still scratching the surface of oh, neuroscience absolutely. but this has been great i absolutely loved you know thinking about this topic and at times I would admit it was not easy you you had to struggle through that yeah. but I absolutely loved it and right. always happy to have you to talk about this kind of stuff so this I believe that we address the issue of free will in a way that a lot of people can relate to and at least start thinking about it right. you know my intention is not to come to a conclusion in a 45 minutes conversation right. uh, but at least encourage people to start thinking about it right. because this has a huge implication on everybody's life in all aspects Absolutely. of our life Absolutely. so thank you stanley for joining me today and taking this topic courageously and uh, bringing your ideas and uh, positions uh, into the table yeah and and you know i just to add to that i think uh you're right these topics uh it's almost impossible to come to agreement on right but i think we've done our best to lay out the thought that has gone before us not no, almost nothing i said here today came from myself these are all thoughts from great thinkers oh, yeah, in yeah. the past that have thought about these issues and as far as i know these we've covered all of the ways people have addressed this issue that's the best we can hope to do in topics like these and uh, I, i really look forward to to more conversations like this sounds great thank you Thank you.